Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod Extra. I'm Edwina Landale and today we're going to be having a quick look at the Pakistan elections. Last week, the world watched as Pakistan headed to the polls to elect new government. Victory has been claimed by Pakistan Tariq Insaf, known as the PTI, led by cricketer-turned-politician Imran Khan. PTI has managed to break a decades-long two-party system by campaigning on an anti-corruption platform, ousting the dominant Pakistan People's Party and Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz. Voting took place on Wednesday and was managed by up to 800,000 police and military forces. Military presence was allegedly intended to support the election commission, but the military's micromanaging has fueled claims of rigging and raised serious questions of military interference. We have with us today Moeen Chima, a senior lecturer at the ANU College of Law and the convener of the LLM program in Law, Governance and Development. Moeen is currently researching a contextualised history of the law and courts in post-colonial Pakistan, and he joins us today to help untangle some of the complexities of Pakistani politics, hopefully to shed some light on the current situation. Hello and welcome, Moeen. Uh, thank you for having me on your show, on your podcast. Thanks for coming. Khan has not managed to secure a majority in government and he's going to need to form a coalition. What kind of coalition do you see forming over the coming weeks? Well, um, he hasn't, his party, the PTI, hasn't gotten an outright majority, but they have gotten close enough. Uh, they've gotten uh, many more seats than some of the analysts predicted. So before the elections, it was widely predicted or anticipated that his party, the PTI, will emerge as the largest uh, political party in terms of presence in, in parliament uh, at the national level. Uh, but the, they've gotten a few more seats than was generally predicted, and which gets them close enough to a simple majority that they can form uh, possibly with the support of a number of independent candidates who have uh, won uh, this time around, as well as a couple of smaller political parties. So the coalition formation process might not be as challenging as it was uh, anticipated before the elections. And by and large, it appears that that the PTI might uh, form a fairly stable, uh, but although very small uh, majority with the support of the independents and a couple of smaller political parties. It is also really interesting to note that uh, the Three big opposition parties, if you look at their combined strength, um, they have a couple more seats uh, than, than the PTI, but the chances of them getting together and then winning over the independents 
uh, and forming a coalition government at the stage seemed to be quite thin. The army has seemed to have a pretty heavy hand in the election. Uh, what kind of relationship do you see evolving between Khan and the military? So that has been the, uh, you know, the, the allegation with, with considerable credibility, you, you might say, um, even before the elections, that the military uh, was favoring or uh, creating uh, greater space for the PDI as, as opposed to the other political parties. Uh, and there were allegations of, as I said, fairly credible allegations of pre-poll Rigging in the sense that a number of uh, independent uh, so-called uh, electables were persuaded to join the PTI and some members of the PMLN, uh, Nawaz Sharif's party, were also persuaded to shift loyalties and join the PTI before ahead of the elections. Uh, also, they from the, that is the narrative that has emerged from the PMLN in the lead up to the elections that the disqualification of its leaders, uh, particularly of former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif and his daughter, uh, was managed by uh, the courts at the behest uh, of uh, uh, or on the you know insistence of the military and uh, you know at the behest of the PTI. So they they've claimed that that is part of the whole pre-poll uh, rigging uh, program. The actual electoral process seems to have gone uh, far better than uh, it, it has historically ever been in, in Pakistan. Uh, as you mentioned, there were a number of large number of police and military personnel uh, who were deployed at police stations. So the process itself seems to have been uh, quite well managed. But then the allegation again is that there was interference in the results compilation and announcement process later on uh, once polling stopped. Uh, but if one takes a you know longer term look at uh, elections in Pakistan, such ele- such allegations about rigging are made uh, at uh, at the time of every elections. Uh, if you recall the last elections held in uh, 2013, where the PMLN government came into power, there were very serious allegations uh, of uh, large scale systematic rigging brought by the PTI, and the PTI even launched a protest campaign that lasted for. Uh, more than a, more than a year until a judicial commission was formed to look into uh, the electoral process. So, unfortunately, this is nothing new in in, in Pakistan's context, uh, and it does appear that despite these uh, suspicions and claims, uh, there will be uh, fairly, relatively, uh, given the Pakistani context, uh, smooth transition to uh, the next government, most probably of the PTI at the centre and possibly also in the Punjab. So you don't see protests occurring like they did last election? Because there was, I think, a, a really long stand-in in Islamabad in 2013. So you don't see anything like that potentially occurring this year? Uh, it is highly unlikely because, because of a couple of reasons. Um, first, the, the People's Party, uh, right from the outset, refused to um, join um, the, the call for any, you know, protest. So they've, you know, nominally all parties have, all opposition parties have rejected, quote unquote, rejected the elections or the results of the elections. But the People's Party made very clear that it would sit in parliament and it would uh, essentially do the protests in parliament rather than on the streets. Uh, and the PMLN historically hasn't had that sort of street power uh, to uh, sustain a long-term protest campaign like the PTI did last time around. Uh, and um, so it seems at this stage highly unlikely that despite these protestations, we will actually see a sustained protest movement. So Khan ran on this anti-corruption campaign and it mobilized a lot of young voters in Pakistan. 
Um, the expectations that they have are pretty tall for the PTI. Do you think that they're going to be disappointed or do you think that these expectations are going to be fulfilled now that Khan is in power? Well, that's pr- probably the biggest challenge for, for an incoming PTI uh, government is as exactly as you've pointed out that they have over the years built up such enormous expectations of you know, what they call a new Pakistan, uh, of uh, a much more you know, just egalitarian uh, Pakistan, where free from corruption and from all sorts of uh, uh, malgovernance issues that they have uh, very vehemently criticized the previous governments of PMLN and PPP of. So meeting those expectations will be, uh, to be honest, well nigh impossible. But the, but the real challenge for the incoming government in the next few months, uh, if PTI is successful in forming the government, as seems likely at this stage, uh, will be to, be to be seen to be making uh, big, enough, big enough strides in those directions. Otherwise, um, they, they might just lose a lot of their, uh, the, the sort of goodwill that they, they have uh, from not only their own voters, but uh, even people who may not necessarily have voted for them. But given that they're, they're a new political party forming government at the federal level for the first time, there are expectations that they will, uh, they, they will make big strides towards uh, the agenda that they've, very ambitious agenda that they've laid out for themselves. You mentioned something about new Pakistan, which has been thrown around quite a lot during Khan's election campaign. One of the promises that he's made in line with this is the establishment of an Islamic welfare state. So what exactly does that mean and what kind of policy implementations would it involve? His party is used quite a bit and Imran Khan personally has quite used quite a bit of uh, Islamist uh, uh, rhetoric uh, in the past few years. Um, so the Islamic welfare state agenda that that he's essentially talking about, if we want to see, if we want to have a clearer, more concrete sense of what that agenda might look like, uh, I think it's fairly easy to look at his party's government uh, in the northwestern province uh, of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, where they formed government, the provincial government for the last uh, five years. Um, it's also worth pointing out before I start talking about that agenda that um, there was a major shift uh, in in 2008 uh, where uh, through a constitutional amendment uh, the provinces were given considerable uh, you know decision uh, powers in a sort de- you know delegation of uh, powers to the provinces uh, from the federation and so his party over the last 5 years has used the government in the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province to to give some concrete shape to their agenda, which is principally around reform of the education system, public education system, the public health system. Uh, it's police reform is a big uh, item on their on their agenda and on their program, and they've made considerable gains uh, in that regard in in that province. Uh, and you know, administrative reforms, the reform of the bureaucracy of of governance uh, is has been very big on their agenda in the Northwest and has been part of the manifesto. So that is uh, loosely speaking what what this Islamic welfare state agenda is likely to look like. I want to talk a bit about uh, a bit of a comparison that I see personally. There seem to be a few similarities between Khan and Trump in that they both pretty much ran on the basis of charm and fame, very charismatic people who appealed to a disillusioned populace and motivated the constituencies based on a revolutionization of existing political norms. So what do you see 
in terms of similarities between Khan and other leaders, in particular Trump? And what kind of an impact do you think that a Trump-like leader would have in Pakistan, given that it is a very, very different place to the US? I think that's a very fascinating question. You know, the, maybe what's, what's happening in Pakistan is not, you know, just confined to Pakistan alone, but uh, uh, maps onto certain other trends, as you mentioned, happening in you know, other parts of the world as well. This seeming, you know, uh, rise of uh, new uh, charismatic populist uh, leaders. Um, they're not all alike, but, you know, you have even, you know, the Canadian and prime minister and the, the new French president who've, who've uh, capitalized on a lot of, you know, personal charisma and charm as well. Um, Imran Khan's critics do directly make that comparison with Trump. And the reason they make that comparison with Trump is because of very high levels of what they would call vitriol or anger against uh, the you know the established political parties and their governments and so a lot of the attacks were were highly personalized a lot of the criticism was highly personalized and a lot of uh, the language you know charged uh, his uh, mostly you know young supporters to engage in a lot of uh, um, you know verbal attacks or even abuse of 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 the you know PMLN and of people's party leaderships and even of you know certain segments of the media. So that's where they draw that you know that direct comparison with Trump. But Imran Khan supporters will point out to certain other comparisons which which occasionally he himself makes. For example, with you know Mahathir Mohammed in, in Malaysia, uh, this you know sustained campaign. Uh, he he has been very very consistent throughout his you know, uh, more than two decade long political career uh, since he formed the PTI in 1996 to have consistently focused on anti-corruption as the central pillar of the reform of the justice system as a central pillar of his uh, political uh, agenda. And so, you know, one can cease a comparison with uh, certain successful anti-corruption movements, uh, particularly in Asia in recent times, particularly, as I mentioned, Malaysia. Uh, Imran Khan himself also likes to draw a comparison with uh, Turkey and with Erdogan and uh, pointing out in terms of uh, his party pointing out that the way to push the military back uh, is not by, uh, you know, engaging in overt confrontation with the military, but by, uh, you know, creating good governance, which takes the space away from military establishments. And they hark to, to the example of Turkey, where um, Turkey historically had, you know, the very, very strong military, which seems to have been uh, displaced from its preeminent role within the state structure by a populist uh, and well, supposedly well-performing economically as well as governance-wise, well-performing Erdogan uh, government. So those are also the sorts of trends that, that you know, the people tap into in talking about the PTI. So do you think that that popularized identity or image, like just in and of itself, is going to be useful for changing the narrative of Pakistan? D- domestically, it ha- I mean, that that highly um, charged, personalized uh, rhetoric. What what it has done is created this perception, as I mentioned earlier on in our in our talk, uh, that um, Imran Khan's electoral success has been built not only on his uh, traditional support base, uh, but also on relies on. Uh, a number of traditional politicians, so-called electables who've shifted loyalties. So the question really is, um, if we have a, 
a large number, a large proportion of the same old politicians, the same old people who've been part of the system for uh, for decades and perhaps in some cases even even generations. If that's what the you know that is a significant part of the party, what sort of how is his government going to be in reality different from uh, that of the other political parties if he's beholden to uh, these sorts of interests or dependent on them? But the PDI has created this uh, almost this magical illusion that it's all about the leaderships. If you have clean, honest leadership, uh, the rest of the system will be... So, you know, this all this talk about the fish rotting at the head. So if you have good leadership, the rest of the system, it will start to filter down the rest of the system. And if the leader is, is not corrupt, he will not let anybody else engage in corruption. So that idea will be severely tested in, in, in Pakistan's context in the, in the coming days. And I think a lot of his supporters will have to tone down their expectations, um, very, very high expectations of this new Pakistan. But at the same time, I'm also you know, reasonably or cautiously optimistic uh, based on his party's governance in the Northwest in the last, uh, over the last five years, that there will be some strides towards structural reform of the bureaucracy, of the police, of the justice system, which uh, in, the, uh, you know, in, in education and health, which, which, will be, which will be important, slow but important change in, in the Pakistani context. Thank you to Muin for joining us today. That was a great podcast and I think shed a lot of light on a very, very complicated issue that a lot of people are asking questions about at the moment. We're back on Friday with our regular podcast. This week, we will be looking at societal wellness, how to create health and wellness beyond physical health and illness. It's going to be a good one. So look for that on your regular podcast channel. If you have any comments or any feedback, we're on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society, and on email, podcast at policyforum.net. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.